For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a look at a complication for some Arizona patients who are struggling to overcome opioid addiction. Why did Shakespeare refer to astronomical events so often in his plays? University of Arizona Distinguished Professor Fred Kiefer offers a perspective. I'll share my own remembrance of a man who could rightly be considered the king of the monsters. And a folktale from medieval India, as told by a young Tucson honor student. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In the midst of Arizona's opioid crisis, some patients in recovery are discovering their insurance provider will not cover the cost of a drug prescribed as treatment. Vanessa Barchfield reports. You've probably heard of methadone. That's a drug that's been used for many years to help people wean off heroin or other opioids. For a long time, it was the only game in town. These days, though, doctors have a number of choices when prescribing opioid substitution drugs. Janet Vargas, a psychiatrist in Tucson who specializes in addiction, says in her practice, she prescribes a drug called Suboxone. It'll take the patient out of the withdrawal, and it allows them to continue experiencing a quality of life that they were used to, and it also takes away the cravings. Suboxone is a critical part of the treatment she administers to several dozen patients, all of whom, she says, became addicted after being prescribed opioid pain medication by their doctors. Um, My name is Amir, and um, I'm a very busy person, always keeping on the go and keeping myself busy. Amir is one of Dr. Vargas's patients. He asked me not to use his name because he says he never told most of the people he's close to about his addiction, which started about five years ago. He says he hadn't been feeling well. And I went to go see a doctor and we found suspect tissue in the colorectal area. He had a number of surgeries to remove the precancerous tissue. The pain was excruciating, like it was beyond belief, and I I really wouldn't wish it upon anyone. And so in order to get the pain under control, of course, you're on narcotic, you know, painkillers. In Amir's case, it was oxycodone. That's a common one, says Dr. Vargas. There's also... Morphine, um, oxycontin, fentanyl in some cases, hydrocodone. Amir says he took a dose of oxycodone every six hours, and it helped him feel better, in a way. But in other ways, he really didn't like what the drug did to him. I was a bubbly, bright, social butterfly, and then I became this couch potato introvert. My whole lifestyle changed. I wasn't the same person I used to be. He says when he tried to get off the prescription medicine, the pain of withdrawal was worse than the pain of surgery. You feel like... Your bones are falling apart. Your muscles have no energy. Um, It's just like the cold sweats, rapid heartbeat. Um, For me, my side effect was uncontrollable crying. He says that's when he turned to Dr. Vargas for professional help. So when they come to me, their first meeting with me is two hours long. And I evaluate them. We talk about addiction in general. Most of them, the um, information and education that they have is either what they've read on the Internet or what they've picked up from 
quote unquote friends. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so we talk about um, getting prepared for the following day uh, for what is called the induction process. Um, the induction process either requires the patient to go through 24 hours or 48 hours of withdrawal symptoms. So after the 24 hours, um, I went in to go see Dr. Vargas. She monitored my vitals. Um, she sent my partner with prescription to the pharmacy to go pick up um, the prescription medication. That prescription? Suboxone. Only his insurance company, United Healthcare, wasn't covering the drug. A few years earlier, another pharmaceutical company had developed a drug called Zubzol. It has the same main components as Suboxone, but it's different in a few ways. Suboxone is a film that's dissolved under the tongue. Zubzolve is a tablet. But more importantly, says Dr. Vargas, it comes in a lower dosage. So the difference is 5.7 for uh, Zubzolve and Suboxone, which is 8 milligrams. She says when Zubzolve came on the market, United Healthcare said patients needed to go on it or they wouldn't cover their treatment. And at the time, I was at another clinic. We had three patients at that clinic that were covered by United Healthcare. All three patients had been in treatment for six months or longer and stabilized and doing well. Um, within that first 30 days, all three patients relapsed once we put them on Subsolve. Because what the Subsolve said was we could take them from the 8 milligram Suboxone and just uh, you know, um, start them on the 5.7 because they were bioequivalent, and that wasn't the case. She says initially United said if a patient failed on Zubzolve, they would cover Suboxone, a position that Dr. Vargas takes issue with. Why should anybody be put in danger to fail, you know, especially in a situation like this where failure could mean death? Dr. Vargas says although she disagreed with that approach, most of her patients still had their treatment covered. We could send the prior authorization and if needed, actually fill out an appeal. And United Healthcare was more than willing to make that decision based on the fact that the patient had been in treatment for a period of time, had been successful, and allowed that. As of January, that changed. She says United no longer covers Suboxone for any of her patients, meaning patients like Amir are left to pay out of pocket. He says his treatment costs him about $2,500 a year, and Dr. Vargas has been a big help in this area, too. She did lots of research to get me on different programs that can help you um, financially. Some of her other patients get much-needed financial help as well. Of my patients, 100% of them are employed. But they are what we know as the working poor. They earn too much to be on public assistance and not enough to pay for the medication, which is expensive, on their own. But that is exactly where those with United find themselves. I reached out to the health insurer for the story. I wanted to ask why, in the midst of this opioid epidemic, the company chooses not to cover one of the main drugs that's used to treat people in recovery. The company's communications department sent me a statement saying United Healthcare has been investing in programs to reduce the overuse of opioids for more than a decade and that their coverage gives members quick access to needed treatments. You can read the full statement on our website. In a nutshell, United contends that Suboxone and Zubzolve are the same drug, produced by different manufacturers, but with the same active ingredients. In a follow-up email, they said that in some cases, after review of prior authorization, Suboxone may be approved. The American Medical Association has weighed in on the matter. 
It released a statement that reads, When a patient seeking care for an opioid use disorder is forced to delay or interrupt ongoing treatment because of a health plan utilization management coverage restriction, such as prior authorization, that can be harmful to their care and health. With respect to opioid use disorders, that can mean relapse or death from overdose. For her part, Dr. Vargas says United has denied all her prior authorization requests. Yeah, there's nothing you can do. I mean, we, although that's um, a case right now, she does think there's a solution. You know, each state gets to govern how insurance is dealt with, and I do think it's something that needs to be looked at at the legislative level. She says that legislation would prohibit insurance companies from requiring prior authorization or denying patients treatment for opioid use disorder. She's meeting with state lawmakers in the hopes of getting her cause on their radar in the next legislative session. Amir would like to see a change in laws, not really for his benefit, but for others. And going forward, he says he wants to use his experience to help people who find themselves in his position. There's nothing better than being able to see an influence you've had on someone's life or being able to help someone heal or to treat someone. I've always wanted to be a doctor or, you know, a nurse practicing medicine, a nurse practitioner. So ultimately, that's my dream. Um, and, And I think that with experiences that I've had, I'd be able to really help people. He has a few months left in his treatment, and he says he's looking forward to being entirely drug free very soon. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Vanessa Barchfield. On Monday, August 21st, a swath of the North American continent from Oregon to South Carolina will be plunged into darkness for a few minutes as the moon blocks the sun for the first coast-to-coast total solar eclipse in 99 years. University of Arizona Distinguished English Professor Fred Kiefer spoke to AZPM science reporter Sarah Hammond about the references to astronomical occurrences, like eclipses, that occur in the works of William Shakespeare. In Shakespeare's day, you find these events mentioned everywhere. And the reason is quite simple, and that is that probably most people in Shakespeare's day were attuned to the sky, and they felt that the events of the sky, the stars and the other heavenly bodies, had an influence on human society What kind of influences would they have anticipated? They would often see the heavenly bodies as being portents of some problems in human society down here on Earth. Sometimes, for example, they might think of the uh, eclipse as portending some war, assassination, or some other dire event. And does Shakespeare's mention of eclipses and comets and, and other events acknowledge the scientific advances that were happening at that time? You know, Copernicus had already been published, and he had new theories about the solar system. So was it an acknowledgment by the Bard and others that they knew what was going on on the science side of the house? I wish I could say that the answer to that question was yes, but the probable answer is no. I think most people did not have any sophisticated notion of the advances that were being made in astronomy. Galileo was an exact contemporary of Shakespeare's. That is, they were both born in 1564. But how much did the average Elizabethan know about these discoveries? I think very, very little. I think that the notion of what 
the heavenly bodies were and how they operated, these things were as mysterious as they had ever been before. And certainly without the advent of social media, the, the general common person in England would not have known that, that one of these events was going to happen, even though the scientists may be able to predict it. I think that's fair to say. One of the most famous examples of a reference to eclipses occurs in Shakespeare's King Lear, a play that was written and performed for King James in 1606. And... David Levy, who lives in Vale, just outside Tucson, is perhaps the best-known amateur astronomer in America today, and he was, by the way, the discoverer of the Shoemaker-Levy Comet. He has made an argument that that reference in the play may be a reference to an eclipse that happened near the time of Shakespeare's play. Let me just uh, give you a line from King Lear. This is spoken by a character named Gloucester, who is watching his kingdom fall apart and watching his family be destroyed. And he is so upset that he's looking for an answer, how to account for this destruction. And this is what he says, these late eclipses in the sun and moon portend no good to us. So what he's done there is to make a connection between the eclipse and the collapse of human society, and the collapse of his own family. But the most interesting thing about this is that Shakespeare doesn't leave it there. Gloucester says this line to his son Edmund, and as soon as Gloucester the father leaves the stage, the son is left behind to completely repudiate what his father has said. Edmund says, this is the excellent foppery, that is foolishness, of the world, that when we are sick in fortune, often the surfeits of our own behavior, we make guilty of our disasters, the sun, the moon, and stars. So what Shakespeare has done in this one conversation is to represent two entirely different interpretations of the significance of the eclipse. And he doesn't give the audience an answer as which is right. He leaves it up to us to decide. And what's interesting about that play is that the characters are forever generalizing about the world, about the universe, about the stars. One of them says, uh, the stars, the stars above us govern our conditions. What the play does, though, is it never comes to a resolution. It allows the audience in the theater or the reader at home to decide which of these points of views is most accurate. Are eclipses mentioned in other Shakespearean works? They're mentioned in a number of places in Shakespeare, as are comets and meteors. Let me give you an example or two. In Julius Caesar, before the assassination, the plotter Cassius reports that, quote, the complexion of the element, by which he means the condition of the sky, looks like, quote, the work we have in hand, namely murder. So he's making a connection between what he sees in the sky and what's going on right here. And that night, Brutus is not able to sleep. In his garden, he finds himself distracted by what he calls the exhalations whizzing in the air. And by this, he's referring to the light from meteors, which were regarded as ill omens. Let me give you another example from Hamlet. A character recalls that at Caesar's assassination, citizens of Rome saw what he calls stars with trains of fire and disasters in the sun, 
and he means threatening signs. And in the first scene of Hamlet, another character says of the Christmas season, the nights are wholesome, then no planets strike, meaning no celestial bodies exert an evil influence. I think what I want to stress here is that in Shakespeare's day, there was no strict difference between astronomy and astrology, and people of real intellectual sophistication believed in the influence of the stars and the other heavenly bodies and the influence of eclipses. Is there something we haven't talked about that resonates with you in terms of this this topic of the upcoming eclipse and literature? Well, I think that today we tend to look upon science as something that's an unalloyed good. We identify science with knowledge and uh, sophistication about our world. But remember that science didn't have the same track record in Shakespeare's time. And people were more likely to be confused and apprehensive about things like eclipses and the influence of the stars because they didn't have the tools that we have today that astronomers have, for example, to look at the heavenly bodies and to make deductions about them. Dr. Frederick Kiefer, thank you so much for sharing a a little literature um, information with us. It's my pleasure. Southern Arizona will see about 60% of the sun's rays blocked by the moon starting at 9.16 a.m. on August 21st, which is also the first day of classes at the University of Arizona. The phenomenon will peak at about 10.36 local time. The eclipse ends just after 12 noon. Observers, please be sure to protect your eyes. Earlier this week, science fiction, fantasy, and monster fans around the world were saddened by the passing of a true unsung hero. Here's an essay in remembrance. I have said it before, and it remains true today. All my favorite heroes are monsters. From Frankenstein and the Wolfman to Oscar the Grouch, the characters that I watched most excitedly on TV in my youth were loners and misunderstood outsiders. Towering above all of them, quite literally, was Gojira, now better known by the American name Godzilla. In 1954, this unlikely anti-hero became Japan's most successful global movie star. It was about two decades after Willis O'Brien's stop-motion creation, King Kong, became the first giant monster on film, and at least four decades before computer-animated imagery made such creatures commonplace. But most importantly, it was less than 10 years after the USA had dropped two atomic bombs on the populace of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. There was something different about Godzilla. Inside of him was a man. Haruo Nakajima was a humble 25-year-old actor and sword fight stuntman when he was offered the biggest part of a lifetime. In every photo I have ever seen of him, he wears a big, friendly smile. 
I wasn't able to find out why Godzilla director Ishiro Honda thought that Nakajima-san would be right for the role, but the young man's easygoing nature must surely have been valued as an asset. Legend has it that when he was preparing for the first film, Nakajima-san started taking his lunch at a nearby zoo to study the movement of big animals like bears and gorillas. When he was finally placed inside the first Godzilla suit, which was partially made from a concrete compound due to the scarcity of rubber following World War II, he discovered that complex movement was impossible. Godzilla itself demanded that he invent his own style. The athleticism and patience needed to spend hours a day inside a poorly ventilated 220-pound suit of padded armor is almost unthinkable. Perhaps monster acting should be considered an Olympic sport, with Nakajima-san as its Michael Phelps. For 20 years, he played not just Godzilla, but a host of monsters, including Mothra, Baragon, a mushroom man, a couple of gargantuas on the side, and even the Japanese version of King Kong. When it turned out that the Kong suit was even more difficult to move in, he let his protege take over the lead in Godzilla vs. King Kong. Nakajima-san took his new role just as seriously and challenged himself to come up with different moves that had an ape-like flavor. In later years, he adored meeting Godzilla fans and seemed to never tire of sharing stories about his adventures as the king of the monsters. Going to international science fiction and fantasy conventions gave Nakajima-san a chance to share the world with his beloved daughter, his favorite traveling companion. He once said that being able to tour the globe with her by his side made him feel 500 feet tall. Well, he would know. Earlier this week, Sonoe Nakajima announced the death of her father at age 88 from pneumonia. Fans from virtually every nation on earth shared tributes online. One commenter suggested we should all work together to find the gentlest possible way to break this tragic news to the residents of Monster Island, the fictional United Nations facility that houses the friends, neighbors, and defeated enemies of the mighty Godzilla. I think that sounds like a wise idea. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Mark McLemore. Since the beginning, two things that people learned to share were the drum and the story. Here's a tale from medieval India, as told by 15-year-old Tucson honor student Shivansh Shrivasta. This is Birbal Stew, and I'm Shivanj. Emperor Akbar was the third Mughal emperor who ruled the region now known as India and Pakistan from 1556 to 1605. During his reign, he had nine extraordinary ministers in his court, known as the Nine Jewels. Out of all of the Nine Jewels, Birbal, the wisest and closest minister to Akbar, always stood out. Akbar was always known for challenging Birbal's wit, but Birbal always had an answer to whatever Akbar threw at him. On a cold winter day, Akbar and Birbal took a walk along the lake. While the two were in the middle of a conversation, the topic turned to money. Birbal claimed 
I think that a man will do anything for money. Akbar then put his finger into the lake and immediately removed it because of the freezing temperature. He then said, I don't think a man would spend an entire night in the cold water of this lake for money. Birbal replied, I am sure I can find such a person. Akbar then challenged Birbal into finding such a person and said that he would reward the person with a thousand gold coins. Birbal searched far and wide until he found a poor man who was desperate enough to accept the challenge. The poor man entered the lake and Akbar had guards posted near him to make sure that he really did as promised. The next morning, the guards took the poor man to Akbar. The emperor asked the guards, did this man stand in the lake for the whole night? Yes, your majesty, we couldn't believe it ourselves, they replied. Astonished, Akbar asked the man, how on earth did you manage such a feat? The poor man said, your majesty, I spent part of the night looking at the palace lights. It helped me focus. Surprisingly, Akbar said, In that case, you did derive warmth from the palace lights. You didn't fulfill the conditions, so you do not deserve the reward. The poor man could not do anything, so he went to Birbal for help. The next day, Birbal invited Akbar and the other ministers of the court to his house for dinner. Upon reaching his house, Akbar asked, What will we be eating, Birbal? Birbal said, I am preparing some stew. Please make yourselves comfortable while it gets ready. Hours passed and Akbar was starting to become impatient. What is taking so long? The stew should have been done by now. But Birbal simply said, just a bit longer, your majesty. It is almost done. So Birbal and the ministers continued to wait, but the stew was still not finished. Finally, Akbar asked Birbal about the status of the stew again. But this time, Birbal offered to show them the stew and led them outside to his backyard. To their dismay, they found the pot of stew tied to the top of a tree, with the fire more than five feet below it. The emperor and the ministers couldn't help but laugh. Akbar then said to Birbal, Have you lost your senses, Birbal? How can this stew be cooked if it is so far away from the fire? Birbal answered, Why not? If a poor man can receive warmth by just looking at the palace lights, which are many miles away, why can't the pot receive warmth from a fire burning merely a few feet away? Akbar realized his mistake and said, Birbal, I see your point. I will give the reward to the poor man as soon as we return to the court, but we are hungry now. Birbal said, Your Majesty, I am sorry for having kept you hungry for such a long time. The meal will be served in a short while. The next day, the poor man was summoned to the court, and Emperor Akbar gave him the thousand gold coins, as promised. Next Tuesday, August 15th, is celebrated as Independence Day in India. This year marks the 70th year since the end of British rule. Shivant Shravasta is a junior at Catalina Foothills High School, where he's the captain of the school's Lincoln-Douglas debate team. He's the founder and primary teacher of Saraswati Vihar, an Indian heritage school that holds monthly classes about the culture and customs of his family's home country. Shivanch has also served as one of two representatives from Pima County on the Arizona Governor's Youth Commission. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and on the Content Depot NPR One. 
This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.